Haskell Leadership Podcast with Jeff Barton. Hello, welcome to our November podcast. And this one, as always, is all about leadership. You've got student leadership, you've got multi-academy trust leadership, you've got leadership in Scotland, you've got business leadership, and you've got what is it like to lead a school in a coastal area. There's lots more as well. Hope you enjoy it. Uh, Julian Drinkle, CEO of AET, the Academy's Enterprise Trust. Now, AET is a large national trust uh, so to speak. Um, c- give us a flavour of how, how large it is and um, what it is that hel- helps you to make that cohere because from the outside it could look very f- fragmented but I know from talking to you that actually you're on a real mission to bring all kinds of benefits so just describe it to us. Yeah so uh, in total we've got around 37,000 children uh, across 64 academies where all over the UK the only region we're not in is, uh, is the North West Manchester and Liverpool uh, primaries and secondaries, we're roughly equally split between the two, and we also have a handful of special schools. So that gives you a size of a big organisation with a huge amount of diversity. Uh, and we're in a lot of communities and areas which have uh, big challenges. Um, so an extraordinary diversity of, uh, of, of schools and academies. The thing that works for us at a national level is we have a massive amount of experience. We have some tremendous staff who've done some tremendous things in different parts of the country. And we're striving for for, for national excellence. And it's the network that we can create. It's the training, the development, the nurturing, the introducing that allows us to get specific people with specific knowledge helping people who've got those particular problems. Uh, And so instead of a, a culture where you're told what it is that needs to be done, uh, we almost act as, a, as an introduction agency where people are saying, you know, I need this type of support, this is my particular area that I'm really focused in and want to solve now. Who can help me with that? Yeah. And we can really reach across the whole country and get different people in And one of the issues we know from, uh, at Askell is a, a, a quite, quite a big issue which can cause quite big problems is to do with governance and an understanding in the modern age of what governance looks like. You've got this great concept about principles serving as governors uh just kind of describe that to me and describe if i'm if i'm the head of a school a principal of school what benefit that gives me to have one of those principal governors there sure um i think there are two things that we're really trying to achieve with the governance model Uh, at one level and the most important one is that educational standards and the quality of educational governance continues to go up we all know that governance is getting more complicated it's getting more technical there's huge amounts of complexity around legalities, uh, new regulations. So we want to make sure that the quality goes up. But the second thing is we also want it to be really supportive, good educational advice. We want proper educationalists who've been there and done it. And so some of the problems that I think exist with governing bodies is that they can't cope with the novelty and the complexity and the technicalities. Uh, and they also lose their focus about what the real governance imperative is. So what we've devised is a system whereby we've got chairs of governors who are regional, who are absolutely exceptional. They've done all aspects of education, really know what they're talking about. But we ask the principals of every one of our academies to sit on at least one governing body. Mm. And we also insist that every governing body, in addition to having an excellent chair, also has two peer principles on that governing body. And what our principles are saying to us is these new governing bodies are so much more focused and we've got people who really understand and are engaged with the problems that we face 
and that it's lovely to be both a giver and a recipient of governor services. Um, so our heads are saying the meetings we have are really focused. I've got people who I respect, who trust and understand what it is that I'm uh, doing. They can give challenge and they can give support as well. But from my own professional development, for me to go to another school, see a different context, that's great learning for me. And it's a great privilege to be able to offer some expertise to, to a head or a principal who would like to know another angle. Yeah, I think it's an inspired um, concept, which is going to help all of us to understand governance more. Uh, last question. We watched a video before of your Remarkable Lives uh, project. Just, just give us a flavour of that. Yeah, sure. So what we're saying at AET, and I mentioned a bit with regard to our national context and that we're a very large organisation and we serve some very challenged communities, our vision for the organisation is that everyone finds their own remarkable. Um, And that means every child, every pupil, every student in our school gets a notion of what it is to be remarkable. Every member of staff, and we'd also like our parents and communities to feel that sense of it. So we've launched this programme which is about Remarkable Lives, which is our remarkable world in 10 years' time. And we want people to understand what the diversity of education can bring. So we're having a whole variety of events, drama, art, sport, um, music. And the idea is that everyone is trying to find uh, what, what, what's remarkable, what really fascinates them. So it's part of our sort of inclusive vision. It's part of our sense that education has so much more to provide than just you know, certificates and uh, ticks in boxes. Uh, it's, a, it's a real attempt to explore the humanity of all of our children mm-hmm. and um, prompt them to, uh, to want to choose and to enjoy uh, a remarkable life. It's very optimistic. Julian Drinkle, thank you. Tracy Crowder, head teacher among Seton High School in North Tyneside. Uh, so you're in a coastal community. We are. Uh, just describe uh, the school and describe the community it serves. So it's a, our school particularly is in a three-tier system, which are obviously a dying breed. Um, we are one of two high schools across a pyramid where we have um, eight first schools and four middle schools but we serve a very mixed demographic within that one pyramid. Beyond that, we've got a number of very, very close by schools as well. So again, the demographic across the authority is very mixed. So we border Northumberland, we border Newcastle, um, but a lot of us are on the coast which brings many different problems. And let's talk about that because everyone will have heard uh, comments around coastal areas and so on but what is it like in a coastal area i mean but by definition what you don't get is people being able to move through them because one side is kind of you know the sea um so you get less movement well i believe you you know you describe to me what it's like are you talking in terms of the the communities or yeah tell us about the community so we have in our school recently seen quite a shift in our community actually we would pull from um, some of the more affluent areas and then right at the other end of the spectrum we pull from some of the the families who are less affluent but have actually seen decades of unemployment. Um, a lot of that comes from where we are, coastally, around the shipbuilding and so on. However, more recently, as a local authority, they did a huge piece of work for us around our um, each school's intake, but not just looking at you, you ever six, all of the other different factors that we would put in and they've actually grouped us and what we've seen is within our very small coastal area we've got some of them who are decile 10 and some who are one 
Now that's you know, literally Gosh. very few in between. Yeah. So that's quite a tricky demographic to deal with. In terms of what that looks like in the broader sense, they ultimately bring lots of challenges and problems with them as families, as communities. So therefore, as a school, we, we try very hard to provide all of those services that we can. But like other colleagues and other communities and authorities, the services are not there that used to be there. And so when you talk about the kind of uh, difficulties <coughs> that these people might have and the kind of services that you need, give, give us a flavour of those. So, for example, the, one of the obvious ones is the school nurses. Um, we used to have a school nurse come in very regularly. We have some access to that, but that's limited. Obviously, there's a whole the queue of young people who would like to access that. We have a counselling service, a mentor service in school, but that's limited due to funding. It's a part-time service. We have to then buy in additional mental health support. We have a number of mentors and learning support assistants because of the nature of our SEN, because of the additional needs. We have a whole raft of young people who don't sit within the register, but of course need the additional support. And that's before you start to look at the SEMH, the behavioural issues, and actually the needs of those. So young people that maybe before access some alternative provision um, can't access the alternative provision or previously might have had a statement, but actually now, because of the thresholds, can't access the HCP. So we have to deal with those in-house, but also the families and educating the families, but dealing with some of the very real issues they face, whether it be housing, whether it be um, benefits, whether it be all of the other things, but actually their mental health, their well-being. It sounds like schools are being expected to do more and more with less and less. Yes, absolutely. Um, and what, what do you think, if things carry on the way they are in terms of funding and the reductions people are having to make, what, what, what do you foresee from this? It's, it's difficult now. It will become increasingly difficult. Um, I said earlier, I feel like it's, it's a vacuum. We've got all of the traditional pressures at school. You've got your accountability. But in many ways, that's on the back burner. Obviously, it's not, but it has to be because before you can, any young person can access any of those things, you have to deal with their, their physical well-being, their mental well-being. Are they attending? Actually, how do we get them to attend? So all of those young people I've talked about, Typically, a lot of them will have attendance issues. Sometimes it's a pull to be at home, sometimes it's actually not, and they're truanting elsewhere. Um, pressures on staff, I alluded to this earlier. We, we do operate hugely in schools on discretionary effort and goodwill from our colleagues. I'm very fortunate, I have a fantastic staff who give everything. But actually, we're asking more and more of our staff things that they necessarily didn't train for younger colleagues coming into the profession it's a twofold really it's double edged sword sometimes I think they expect it more but actually the flip side of that is they expect more from mm. the role mm. um, this was discussed earlier around well actually they are not the kind of young people these days millennials don't think I'm going to go into that job and stay they will move around they'll pick and choose whereas some of us older colleagues we, we stayed longer and we would do that but they don't have to and that brings added pressures and the colleagues that do give 110% day in, day out, but we're not just expecting to educate young people in the classroom. They're their parent. We have to do all of the other things. We have to educate them. Just finally, Tracy, there'd be some people who would listen to that and say, well, 
you know, teachers weren't trained to be social workers, parents and so on and so forth. What would the consequence be if you would say to yourself, look, we can't afford to do this, all you must do is to focus on delivering the curriculum? There would be a whole raft of young people, certainly in my school, that just could not access that. We couldn't keep them in the classroom. Could we even get them through the doors? Because you have to look at the, the bigger picture, the whole young person. Otherwise, and I would argue, you know, particularly given our intake, given some of the challenges we face, we wouldn't be the school we are. We wouldn't get the outcomes we do if the staff didn't give the extra. Thanks for talking to me. No problem. I'm uh, Brian Anson. I'm head teacher at Springhead Primary School. I've also been involved working with the Royal Shakespeare Company for the last five years and, and now on their education advisory body looking at how the work can impact on learning for children in school. Great. So you've been a head for 15 years, I think. Tell- 15, 15 years at this school, one year at another school, yes. Tell us about your current school. Yeah, Springhead Primary School is a one-form entry school in North Staffordshire, near Stoke-on-Trent. It's um, what I'd call it's a working-class um, school, fairly st- um, typical Stoke and Trent area with lots of people, parents in low paid, um, low skill sort of jo- jobs. Um, and it's um, the school where we've probably got children who haven't got the, the vocabulary, the language, which is sometimes holding back their learning. And so you took the bold decision, in a sense, to work with the Royal Shakespeare Company. You've got a long term partnership with them. Tell us the kind of things that are happening in your school as a result of that. As a result of it, I think our children have, have been transformed. I start with behaviour. I mean, behaviour, we have very few behaviour issues in the school. When there are issues, the children find ways of solving them, sorting them out, um, dealing amongst themselves. The way we teach, and the, or the way the children learn, has changed. It's much more active. The children feel a right to be involved in the learning, to be involved in discussions, um, want to have a say in their learning. Um, I think the whole project has gone beyond the RSC and Shakespeare, but actually is empowering the learning, making them life, lifelong learners. And so what is it that the uh, Royal Shakespeare Company have brought to the school? Because they work through the teachers, essentially, don't yeah. they? It's about training teachers, um, giving teachers the skills that go into the classroom, um, and for them it's delivering the strategies to get the uh, children interested and enthusiastic about Shakespeare but for us those strategies can be applied across the curriculum so it's making teachers much more reflective because teachers have to think about what are the children learning how can I adapt the activity for the children's learning um, how can I make it practical because um, it's when children are learning in a practical way um, and verbalize it they remember things so it's actually getting the children involved in that and but I think the key is making teachers much more reflective I've now got a team of teachers who are teachers as researchers they're constantly finding out how to do things for themselves make things better they're not waiting to be told how to do things they're almost ahead of me sometimes they're actually yeah. we get initiative and they've worked they've worked out how to do it okay and f- finally for those people who might be listening to this maybe in constrained circumstances worried about inspection worried about key stage two performance and so on who are thinking well i'd love to do that but it would be damaging to me um you had a piece of writing from a year six would you could we just stick it out of your bag and just read the first paragraph of it and just explain what it is? Yeah. What, what, what's this? This is a year six piece of writing. There's a year six piece of writing. A children were studying Miss Summer Night's Dream, and they had to write this child a letter as Oberon to Titania um, about it. So just, it just gives the first paragraph. Says, my dear, my dear Titania, you self-absorbed queen, you quarrel. Your quarrel yesterday gave me no satisfaction whatsoever. Your angry words still buzz in my ears. I remain discontented as you still have the changeling boy in your clutches. He should be mine. 
If you truly love this fledging, you would stop making a mockery of me and begin to make a guardian of um, a guardian of me. Okay. So, so this is the demonstration that the, the children are learning all kinds of things. Culturally, we're seeing things. Socially, we're seeing things in terms of behaviour. But we're also seeing their literacy levels improve. It's um, yes, it's definitely what, what we've found is what we're asking of children to do in literacy is difficult. What we're expecting yes. year six children to get at the end of year six. It's really hard. How can children be able to write with control over their writing um, for an audience unless you've actually swamped them in the area? No, you, so we're doing so much. What we've learned is less is better. Yeah. So we're spending time looking at uh, uh, perhaps a bit of Shakespeare's um, uh, script. Children exploring the issues, acting out, discussing the feelings, using the language, and then when they get to write it, they can really picture the audience and think about who they're writing it for and they want to improve it. Brian, inspiration. Thank you very much. No problem. <laughs> My name is Helen Pinnington and I'm the new head teacher at St Edmund's Arrowsmith Catholic High School in Wiston. And when you say new head teacher, I mean, how long have you been in that role? I've been here for eight weeks and I love uh, it. <laughs> well, that is great. So what is it that, uh, that led to that? What were you doing previously? Well, I've been a deputy head, uh, a sole deputy at an outstanding school called St Peter's Catholic High School in Wigan for four years. I've worked for Nosley before. Um, in many different capacities as a head of department and as a school improvement partner um, and I have a real belief in the young people of Nosley and that's really what sent me back because this is a school in very challenging circumstances. It's interesting because a lot of people in those positions say to us uh, that they get all the satisfaction from that but the idea of taking on the headship is too terrifying in a sense so what is it that led you to, to do that and be is it terrifying? It is it isn't terrifying um, what's led me to do it is I think probably working in those circumstances previously under really good leadership mm. and committed leadership made me realise that if things are going to change for young people then people have to commit to taking on these these roles and I think I'm fortunate because I've worked in a variety of different schools in different types of catchment areas and having had the experience of being led well by people and being led by people who've inspired me as mm. well as really what's made me kind of if you like take the risk and is it does it feel significantly different from previous role as deputy yes and no day to day it doesn't because it's still about the relationships with the students and beginning to build those relationships with staff and students um, the difference is that strategic role and having to have confidence really to stand back and look at things strategically rather than just having to, to keep going. So a really good example of that would be um, something that happened recently and I went to double check with one of my assistant heads because I don't have a deputy as to whether or not something had been put in place. And he looked at me and he said it was a, it was a year seven information evening and he came back and he said, it's all done. And I was like, okay. And about 20 minutes later, he came into my room and he said, because you're used to the doing <laughs> and I said yeah that's what it is I said it's not that I didn't trust him it was it was I found it very strange to not be the one that I, was, I totally that, was get that. that was if you like checking that everything yeah. was being done yeah. and was ready rather than actually having just stood back and done the, the thinking of, yeah. about that event. but also it's liberating having that 
responsibility for strategic things, thinking yeah. you can take decisions, which will sometimes go wrong, but when they don't, you see the impact on young people, the impact on staff. There's something incredibly rewarding about that. Definitely. And that's the bit I'm struggling with as well, because eight weeks in, I'm really not sure I'm seeing any impact no, no, no. For, for young no. people. But I have to hold but my maybe nerve. Maybe that's a good thing. Maybe that's a good thing. Maybe superficial impact is exactly the kind of thing we don't want. We want the stuff that's going to be longer term. Yeah. And that's one of the things. It's a school that's faced... It's not had a head teacher for three years for, for a lot of different reasons. And I think that's something I... When I say hold them a nerve, that's what I've had to do, is they've actually... Because they've had temporary leadership in that time and they've actually had to undergo quite significant structural change, that having my nerve, having the nerve to stand back from that and to actually stop and think about building a foundation from which to work from is, is the challenge, really, I think, at Well, you're point. the newest head teacher I've spoken to Thanks. in the past few years. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you very much. And you just exude this enthusiasm. Oh, Brilliant. thanks, Jeff. It was well really done. nice to talk to Thank you. you. Uh, Leanne Griffiths, um, Executive Principal of the Girls Academies Trust for Secondary. And uh, you and I last saw each other, what, I don't know, three weeks ago or something at an event in London. Can you just tell us what happened there? Yeah, so I was down in London for the Pearson Teaching Awards um, where I was very humbled to receive uh, Head Teacher of the Year in secondary school. It was an extraordinary moment and you were nominated by your colleagues. So just tell us a little bit about the trust and the school you work in. Uh, yeah, so I was nominated by um, the senior leadership team at the Molly Academy um, when I was running uh, the Molly Academy, and obviously I work for the Gorse Academy Trust, which is led by Sir John Townsley. Um, and I think I said in my speech that I struggle to remember because I was in uh, what would commonly be described as learner shock at that moment. Um, but the, the team are absolutely sensational. They passionately believe in doing the right things for young people, and I think that um, that, that stands you in good stead, doesn't it? And what's your journey to that been? So just very, you know, very quickly, you started as a teacher of what and, and, and tell us the route. Uh, yes, yeah, so I started off as a teacher of science, uh, did two years in Newcastle and then moved down to Leeds uh, as part of the Fast Track Teacher Programme actually to be second in science at the Morley Academy and then from there progressing to senior leadership and then in 2014 was appointed to the role of principal at the Morley Academy. I'm one of the trustees uh, of, of Teaching Awards and what struck me uh, about the video of you is that there's always a danger that those kind of uh, kind of celebrating ego or something like that and what we saw with you was you uh, interacting with the students and with the, um, the rest of the staff there. But you're quite tough cookie as well, aren't you? You hold the line on things. Just give us a flavour of that. Yeah, I think... Um... I think one of the hardest things to do as a as a leader is to have that resilience to not waver from your key beliefs um, and also from the policies that you've set out with good intention. Um, and somebody has recently said to me actually uh, last term when they were working closely with our senior leadership team, they said actually the thing that I really noticed about the work of the trust is that when the going gets tough, because your policies are so well thought through and because your systems and processes um, are deep rooted in the right intentions for young people that you, you don't you don't then bend when you come under challenge um, unless 
that is appropriate and in many cases actually it's just kind of people wanting you to bend for various different reasons that actually aren't appropriate um, and it's really hard at that moment to hold the line I've had a fantastic mentor in Sir John obviously um, but it's really important that as leaders we do have the courage of our conviction and that we, we, we are consistent because I think everybody including professionals and students want uh, consistency and fairness last question Leanne uh, all, all of us you know however confident we look on the outside have our kind of moments of vulnerability and so on what is it that you, you do to, that kind of keeps you going when you suddenly think is this the right direction for us I mean what, what sustains you it's, it's actually really funny you asking that Jeff given that we're at the Askell Regional Conference because every year I come to the Askell Regional Conference and feel really overwhelmed with the amount of stuff that I think oh I need to go and read that I don't know this I don't know that and then I have a little pep talk with Sir John and he just says oh you know concentrate on the key priorities Ultimately, we all have a fantastic instinct, don't we, for changing the lives of young people. And it's about the good old-fashioned things. Fantastic teaching and learning, great behaviour um, strategies and management. And actually, at the heart of that is inspiring our students through fantastic teaching and learning. And, and it's that. It's that awe and wonder. And it's that love of working together um, as professionals to, to see those lovely moments in students' eyes. Leanne Griffiths, thanks for talking today. Welcome. Hi, I'm Jane McManus. I'm Strategic Director for Scrutiny with Education Scotland. And you've just been talking about inspection and some of the changes in inspection. And uh, Every country in the UK is doing something different with inspection. Can you synthesise what it is you're trying to do through inspection in Scotland? Yeah, I think through our range of inspection models, we firmly see inspection as one of our suite of improvement tools within Education Scotland, as well as providing public assurance and, and accountability about quality and improvement um, in schools. The focus is on how we are supporting improvement either at a school level or establishment level um, to promote system-wide improvement as well. I was very struck listening to it that uh, things which aren't very easy to measure and therefore could easily be kind of dismissed actually are at the heart of what you're doing. There were two things that struck me. One is that absolute focus on professional learning and the other one was about collaboration both within schools and then between schools. Can you just say a bit more about those things? Um, We firmly see our inspection models as working with working with schools so we place the school self-evaluation at the starting point of all our inspection activity and that's where the school can tell us around its context around the priorities it's been working on and where it sees the areas that are working well but also the areas for improvement and then we will carry out sampling of activities um, to work with the school to help them set their next improvement agenda um, as well. So if I'm a head teacher here in Scotland give give me a sense of the practicalities how how inspection works so i think in terms of how inspection works is that we firmly base um, our firm belief is that schools are responsible for their own self-improvement yeah. and so our inspection approach inspection is that we sample so we carry out a sampling approach to identifying schools that we will carry out inspection with a um, key element is starting with those schools own self-evaluation so at the beginning of an inspection, the school will tell us about their context, um, areas of improvement they've been working on, uh, areas where they're seeing success and impact, and also where their next steps for improvement um, are taking forward. And the inspection team will then carry out some sampling activities. Um, a very strong focus on observing learning, to seeing what it's like to be a learner um, in the school. And then throughout the time in the school, the inspectors will also have a range of professional dialogue sessions um, with 
with staff around improvement priorities or new uh, approaches that they're, that they're trying out. And when we carry out surveys around the impact of inspection, then that, that aspect of professional dialogue is one that comes back very strongly as has made a, a tremendous difference and impact um, on the school is the dialogue that um, staff have with inspectors during their time in the school. And that will be a dialogue with leaders or will, with, with a whole range of different staff? It's with a whole range of, whole range of staff. It's with, with um, leaders, with um, classroom teachers, with support staff and, and with young people. Are you, making, well. are you making judgment? You talk about learning. Are you making judgments about the teaching that you see? We're looking at one of our quality indicators that we look at is um, learning, teaching and assessment. Okay. So we look at that range together um, around the range of learning and teaching approaches that are taking place, how assessment is being used to inform um, and planning children's learning and how um, children and young people are motivated and engaged in their learning to enable them to make the best possible progress. And how, how long might an inspection team be in the school? Because I think you were talking in there about different models. So at the moment we have, have two models that, that we're looking at for school inspections. We have a model where the team will go in Monday lunchtime and finish around Friday lunchtime or a model where the team will go in around Tuesday, late Tuesday morning and then finish um, on um, late Thursday afternoon. So that's part of our establishment inspections and then we will also visit school as part of our national th thematic inspections as well. We will sample um, a number of schools and we will get in for a day, day and a half, depending on what the focus is. Yeah. Last question, honest. And that is to say, the criticism of inspection in England, one, one of the criticisms, is that it is too high stakes and that if you get a bad judgment, you worry about your future as a head and so on and so forth. What, what is it in terms of the, the stakes here? I mean, what, 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 first of all, how do you grade schools ultimately and what happens as a result of, of that? Um, in terms of, we firmly believe our, our inspection approaches are about improving, uh, improving the system. Um, we want to ensure that children and young people are getting the best possible um, educational experience and so we'll identify what's working well in the school but also what, what needs to improve uh, and we grade, grade particular quality indicators um, using our quality improvement framework how good is our school so the description of the quality indicators of what is a uh, very good practice is contained within those and also descriptions of the different grades but where the quality of education isn't good enough um, for children and young people, then we will go back and carry out a further inspection. Thank you very much for talking to me. So I'm Billy Burke, I'm head teacher of Renfrew High School in Renfrewshire Council, and I am president of School Leaders Scotland. Yes, and congratulations, you've been president uh, for about three hours or something like that. Yeah, <laughs> thank you. Thank you, Jeff. No, great. Tell us a bit about your school then. So my school is in the west coast of Scotland. Uh, we have just under 800 young people. Uh, comprehensive school, um, a real range of backgrounds and uh, social economic factors, truly comprehensive school in the west of Scotland. Um, I've been in post for just over five years and uh, been, been on a journey over the past five years of, of improvement that I'm really pleased with in terms of attainment, um, but crucially wider achievement and well-being of young people. Um, so the local authority we work for has 11 secondary schools and we're, we're probably a medium-sized secondary um, in, in the area. And when you talk about being pleased with the improvements in achievement and attainment, what kind of things have you, have you done as a team there? So I suppose the, you, you, change, you change culture and results will follow. Um, so 
We have very much focused on putting young people at the heart of decision making in the school and uh, well-being and positive relationships lie at the core of everything that, that we do. And what we have found through, alongside that, investing in developing leadership capacity at every level in the school, um, we have found that young people are more engaged, more ambitious, um, and we've saw year-on-year -year improvement in attainment over the past five sessions, which is really pleasing. And we're in, in the midst of a pretty big uh, experiment with education going on in Scotland itself, isn't it? Which is all about the change to the curriculum, qualifications, uh, and much more. Just give, for those people who don't know about it, give a flavour of some of those reforms. So, the, in terms of curriculum, Curriculum for Excellence has been with us for quite a while now. Um, it, it gradually implemented year on year, uh, culminating in an uh, overhaul of the qualification system in what we call the senior phase, the last three years of secondary, of secondary education. Um, there's been tweaks along the way, decisions along the way that have made the journey not as linear as perhaps we would have uh, anticipated uh, at conception. Um, so that there have been year-on-year -year changes to how practitioners in the classroom prepare young people for qualifications and specifically the, the associated uh, assessment demands the, in, a, in a bid to relieve pressure nationally on teacher workload and what was seen as over overburden of assessment in young people, the decision was made to remove internal unit assessments from uh, some of our certificated courses. So that has resulted in uh, some challenge as people adapt and get used to, to new systems. That's probably one aspect. The, the other main feature of Scottish education improvement and change at the moment is the empowerment agenda, mm. where the Scottish Government um, have set out a pretty clear ambition to, uh, to empower from teacher and school-led, um, an ambition to move towards a teacher and school-led system and empower from the school upwards, where the, the parts and partners in the system very much support improvement for young people's outcomes at, at school level. And finally, here you are, uh, the, the newly sworn in President of School Leaders Scotland. Give us a flavour of uh, what the issues are that uh, SLS is dealing with and uh, what you think might be coming up during the year ahead. Sure, well, I mean, we'll continue to work closely with government and with key partners on the empowerment agenda so that we can um, assist and influence how that shapes up and how it will impact at school level. And for me personally, in the year ahead, um, I've put well-being, um, well-being of, of leaders, teachers and young people at the core of, of the theme for my presidential year, which is around nurturing leadership. Mm. Um, Recognising that the system is complex and, and challenging, um, but there's a lot of joy. There's joy in education. It's the profession which creates all other professions. Um, but we need to make sure that people are at their best. And that means head teachers too. Um, so that idea about looking after ourselves to be able to nurture and look after others will be um, a, a theme running through for me in the year ahead, Jeff. Well, being elected by your peers as president is the, the highest accolade, so congratulations, Billy, and thanks for talking to me. Thank you very much, Jeff. So I'm Jenny Langley, and I'm principal at Great Academy Ashton in Tameside. Tell us a bit about that academy in Tameside, an area of disadvantage, I would think. 
Yeah, there is um, some really significant disadvantage in, in, in the local area, um, but there's also an extremely diverse population. Um, and our, our school is, um, we're, we're, we're more than a thousand, and we're absolutely central in the community. Um, and the young people have a real sense of pride in, in the school, but more importantly, in the fact that they are of Ashton and they want to represent it well. And you, throughout your career, as I understand it, have worked in schools in some of the most deprived areas, haven't you? Yeah, definitely. I've, I've found myself, um, right from my, my second job in teaching, really, in, in areas with significant deprivation in Moss Side and Salford um, and now in Ashton. And, um, and actually, um, I absolutely love being in those situations because the, the, um, the opportunity you can provide is um, just immensely powerful. You said a couple of things I just want to ask you about. One was about teachers and one was about uh, pupils. Uh, let's do the teachers one first. So this lesson study, that's an idea from Japan. Just talk us through how that works. So, um, lesson study is my best um, CPD tip for head teachers and teachers, um, and it comes from some work I did with uh, Professor Chris Chapman when I was in Manchester. Um, and the basic idea is that teachers work in groups of three, and they plan a lesson together, deliver it in rotation, with the aim of getting that lesson as close to fab as it can be. So, by the time it's delivered the third time, hopefully you've tweaked out all the bits that didn't quite work, you've improved, the students make more progress, they're all engaged and you know you made a difference. It's unusual, it's quite an artificial scenario, but the aim is to focus on the craft of teaching as distinct from the subject content, if you like, the absolute skill of engaging with young people. And the power of it is that there's no senior and junior partner. There's nobody being watched by somebody else who doesn't have a stake in it. That lesson is owned by all three people. And that means there's a really powerful discussion that can take place. I really like that because I remember Dylan William talking about this kind of um, learning communities, teacher learning communities or something we were called. But that was different because you kind of planned together, then you went and taught your own lesson and then you came back and talked about how it had gone. That seems to me gives a very, very different perspective where this is the whole process from planning through delivery through then reflecting on what you can learn from having watched someone else and then you're doing it yourself with those two people watching you, as I understand it. Yeah, exactly right. As I say, the, um, the, the challenge I've always found is that teachers often um, develop their skill set through a dialogue with each other, but we tend to create structures that mean that there's, there's always somebody whose job it is to improve somebody else. <laughs> and that's really uncomfortable. Yeah. You know, Even if you're wholly bought into it, it's not a great place to be in terms of taking part wholly with every bit of your... Um, you know, heart and mind attached to it. If you can remove the idea of a, of a, of a, of a senior and, and junior partner and just ask teachers to plan the best lesson they can for those students, they're all going to go for it because that's what they came into the, into the profession for. You have to remove the, the issue of the judgment or the quality assurance aspect of it. Um, it does require trust. Um, but, I've, I, you know, I have great faith in, in teachers. I think the goal is to make sure that they... They know it's theirs to own. It's not mine. Um, I provide the time. I, I, I give the, the, the support, the direction to set it up. Um, and so should all heads. That's the way we should work. But, but it, it's, it's the teachers to, to deliver, and there's nothing to be afraid of in that model. And how have the staff uh, responded to that as an approach? I've never had a negative a negative response to it, in fact. Um, I often start with a, a pilot. If I think about my, my school context now, we're only really just having run one pilot phase. I often start with a small group of staff because I think, truthfully, teachers spend a lot of time feeling anxious about being observed and it often takes that first cycle with mm. colleagues going through it for them to see, actually, yes, this is not scary, it's not judgmental. Um, 
but I've never yet had a, a response where someone said that they were uncomfortable. Good. Well, one last thing. Uh, you are used to working with children who come from disadvantaged backgrounds, and we know, therefore, that even before they set foot in school, there's going to be stuff that they haven't experienced, which their more advantaged ones would. And so you were asked a question at the conference today about interventions, and we are awash with interventions, aren't we? And someone said, could you tell us the one most important intervention? And I thought I would predict what that answer was about you know, extra literacy, extra numeracy, and it wasn't. It was something I've never heard of before. So just what's the number one intervention from your experience? Yeah, um, I agree with all of the possibilities around extra. Um, sometimes that is what students need. Um, but actually, you find often that just extra of more of the same um, has completely the opposite effect and just turns them off. So what I try to do um, is have a look at what are the students' strengths. And I find um, that in quite a lot of communities where there is um, high disadvantage, you'll also find quite a lot of families um, who have parents who are self-employed, sole traders working for themselves and trying to support the families that way. And that means that the young people are wholly aware of what it is to try to make your own living. And it made me think that rather than making them do extra traditional subjects the way that I or somebody else might think they should be taught, what if I actually put time into developing their entrepreneurial spirit? What if I encourage them to think about what it is to set up your own business and to make a profit? And really I did it with the aim of engaging them with a future and making sure they didn't leave school without knowing there was a way to sustain themselves and support the families. But I did find that there is a knock-on effect for those students that take part. Being good at something um, breeds confidence and that is one of the barriers that cause them to struggle in more traditional subjects as well. So I think that's probably my, my favourite intervention for that reason. And in practice that means that your maths teacher, your history teacher, your whatever teacher is making a link between what they're teaching them and how that might be applied in any career. Yeah, absolutely. So essentially, um, we can run that in some ways as, a, as a, a small group intervention if you want. You can work with a small group of students and think about what business or entrepreneurship might be. Um, but yes, you're right. It did absolutely push my thinking a lot further. And I realised that students are familiar with what they're familiar with. Mm. So if you are a student who's not in a family who are familiar with what law might be as a career, how to get into medicine, how to become an engineer, what a marine biologist is, how are they ever going to know that that's on the table for them? And so, yes, I asked all of my teachers in all of the subjects to do their learning objective, their traditional learning objective, the way that they always have. And I asked them, I've asked them to add a careers link to that. And they were asked to explain to the children what future career that might be relevant to, even if the students had never heard of it. Let them ask the questions and find out what's out there for them. And that was also really powerful. Jenny Langley, thank you very much. Thank you. So I'm Stephen Morales, the Chief Executive of the Institute of School Business Leadership. And I guess you could say that the title tells us what the Institute of School Business Leadership is, but give us it in your words and what it's, what it's uh, most engaged in. Okay, so, so we made a very, a very conscious decision to move from an association to an institute because we felt that the, um, the networking, peer-to-peer -peer support was well served by local groups um, and, and, and in many respects by, by unions as well. Um, but we felt that, that what was missing, and particularly with the demise of the National College, uh, was a, 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 an organisation that was setting the standard, creating career pathways, developing qualifications underpinned by those professional standards, and, and, and really um, setting the bar you know, and, and, and expectation. Um, so that's the journey we've been on, and, and, and that's really what we're, what we're about. And what kind of activities does that mean you are leading? 
So, so our, our principal um, activity is, is around CPD. So it's 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 programmes developed for uh, improvements to school business leadership, recognising the diversity that exists within our professional community, from the school finance officer all the way through to uh, executives of multi-academy trusts, uh, COOs, in fact, deputy CEOs. Uh, And one could argue that a lot of what we're talking about is relevant to those on a journey from headship to to CEO. Um, So, yeah, very much um, deconstructing, if you like, the component parts of, of, of a school operation uh, creating a curriculum and modules uh, that talk to those component parts and then taking practitioners on a journey, a development journey. As you know, Ascol represents probably about, I think it's 1,500 uh, business leaders. It's, it's a tough world for them, isn't it, at the moment? Is that what you're seeing in terms of the expectations on the levels of accountability? Yeah, yeah, I, th- I, think, I think so. And, I, and I've talked, I mean, I talked uh, just a few moments ago about, about uh, what kind of education system do we want uh, and, and then my second question is who, who should de- who should decide? And I, th- I think the answer the answer to those two questions, um, particularly the, the the one who should decide, is is, is not clear. Uh, uh, although we would we, we'll all have a view about that, um, the I think what's really difficult for for school leaders is this 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 very rapid reform curve that we've been on, and and, and perhaps not the development uh, the professional development support to go with it. Uh, and uh, what worries me a lot is that people believe they have to go on a particular journey, uh, have to aspire, if you're a head teacher, aspire to be a CEO, if you're a local school business, business leader, uh, become the next COO. Um, and, but then there isn't the available development support to go with that. So then what you find is it, either people not uh, reaching whatever they believe to be their... their you know, or not, not, not to not to realise their their potential or to get there only to find that they're completely out of the depth. Um, yeah. so, so I think you know that, that's incredibly hard. And what, what I think we need to get back to is is celebrating the brilliant and the talent, the brilliant, uh, uh, the brilliant people that we have in the system and the talent that exists and not take them to a place they never wanted to go. Uh, I think that's really important work. Thank you. Stephen Morales. Thank you. Pleasure. Fred Jarvis, uh, former General Secretary of the NUT. And when did you start as General Secretary of the NUT? 1975 to, to 1989. Before that I was Assistant and then Deputy General Secretary. And prior to all that I was President of the National Union of Students. Now, those were extraordinary years to be General Secretary, weren't they? Because you moved from uh, one kind of administration to another. Just give us a flavour of that. Well, it was very, very mixed. Um, there were occasions when one had very good relations with government and others where they were very bad. Now, although um, we had some very bad times, particularly under Margaret Thatcher's premiership uh, and uh, one or two of her Secretaries of State, one of the Secretaries of State that I contended with under uh, um, was Edward Boyle, and I had very good relations with him. And uh, on the Labour side, a number of outstanding men, particularly Tony Crossland, um, S.L. Morris. Uh, there were several there who I worked very closely with. Um, and on the whole, I worked better with them, but not always smoothly. Uh, but with Ed- Edward, um, I must say, was one of the most enlightened 
Uh, and the other thing that was very pleasing about those times, I organised the national uh, campaign for education, the 1963 campaign, which was addressed by the leaders of the three main parties, one of whom was Harold Macmillan, and he made one of the best speeches on education of any politician. And he made it at the meeting I organised the day he had the Profumo debate in the Commons, one of the worst times of his life, but he still came and made that speech. So there were incidents like that which were encouraging, but in general, times were better under Labour than they were <laughs> under the Conservatives. And what, one of the things I, th I think I'm right in saying that Kenneth Baker says in his autobiography is that, I mean, this is the way he puts it, that until his time, the role of Education Secretary being a fairly kind of supine, passive one, and then suddenly it became turbocharged. Is that right? Um, I'm not sure that um, Kenneth, who I had you know, some interesting times with... Um, implying that it was due to him and in fact because of the efforts we and the, the profession generally were making education became more and more prominent in the affairs of the country what, what concerned me when I first came into the job and prior to that was that the country didn't give anything like the importance to education that it wanted as I said recently Education is absolutely fundamental to so many aspects of our own individual lives and national life that it warrants preeminence in the affairs of the country politically. Now, thanks to the efforts of the profession and some individual secretaries of state, that situation has changed. But we're now going into a period, I fear, when things are going to get much more difficult well, already you and your colleagues know how serious the problem of teacher recruitment is, how serious the problem of resources is. And for ministers now to tell the public that there are no problems or that we're spending more on this, having more teachers than that, that is misleading the public quite deliberately because it pays no attention to the real needs of the system and especially of the children. The profession knows that, the ministers ought to be honest about it, and we have to do something serious about it, particularly when in the post-Brexit period, times are going to get much harder for the country as a whole, and education is going to be even more important then than it has been till now. And, and my last question, when you look back over your career, just remind me how old you are now. 94. <laughs> so you've seen a lot of education, haven't you? Uh, when you look about, uh, back over education, what do you feel most optimistic about? Well, the biggest change, well, two things. One, finally the recognition that it's not good enough to divide children into those who deserve something special and those who reserve something elementary. We've now got to the point where we recognise the needs of all children have to be catered for, that there are all kinds of talents to be developed and interests to be catered for. Recognition of that is, is, is of extreme importance uh, and uh, 
recognition at last, but still not completely, of the importance of the teaching profession itself. As I said recently, when I spoke to the Finnish inspector, their success as a country was primarily due to the fact that the government and politicians trusted the teachers. That, I think, is essential. It hasn't always happened in this country. It certainly needs to happen now. Trust the teachers. Fred Jarvis, thank you very much. <laughs> Cheers. Thanks, the Ascot Leadership Podcast with Jeff Barton.